So, Grace Hill, good to see you. And um, if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 20. As you know, we've been in a sermon series all of uh, the summer called For Your Joy. And this is a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And so today we're in the seventh uh, commandment. So we're getting, we're getting there on the back half of those. But one of the things that I've been trying to do throughout this series is not just preach the Ten Commandments, but to teach you how we interpret and how we apply the commandments. Any command that God would give us in Scripture, not just these ten, but any of them— how does that apply to our lives? So I've been trying to do a little bit of uh, biblical interpretation uh, workshops with you, uh, and, and maybe you haven't picked up on that, but there's really been three things that I've been trying to teach us as we've been looking at the commandments and trying to figure out how they apply to our lives, right? So the, the first one that I've wanted you to see is that these commands come from a heart of grace, they are not the way that we earn our salvation from God. And one of the ways that we know that is in Exodus chapter 20, verse two, God, before he even begins in the commandments, right? Before he starts to list them off for us, what does he say to the nation of Israel? He says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of your slavery in Egypt. And so one of the things we see from the beginning is that the pattern to which God gives us commands is he rescues us, he shows grace and mercy, he draws us in, he saves us, and then he gives us commands. It's not the other way around. It's not commands, let's see how you do, and then we can be good, right? Our relationship can be reconciled. That's not the way God operates. And so that completely changes the way that we see these commands. These actually are not to earn your salvation. These are for your joy. They're literally for your good. God has given you these because he's saying, these are the ways that I have designed you to live, and this is how you will flourish in life, how you'll glorify me and these will be for your joy. So that's the first thing that we've been trying to say every single week. The second thing, uh, ways that we've been interpreting this is that God cares more about the heart than he does just the behavior. Now, of course, God cares about the behavior, but God cares more about the heart. So we haven't been looking at each command specifically and the specific behaviors that each command basically talks about, we've been zooming out as the Bible does and looking at, well, what is the heart behind these commands, right? We saw Jesus do this two weeks ago when we last were in this series. The command, the sixth commandment is thou shall not murder. But Jesus is the one who tells us in Matthew chapter five, you've heard it said, thou shall not murder. But I say, if you even hate your brother or your sister, or you have anger in your heart against your brother and sister, then, then you have violated this command. So one of the things we've seen is God is, he's more deeply concerned about the heart of each of these commands. And then finally, I think the thing that we've seen in all of these is that it is the gospel itself that gives us the power to obey these commands, right? So if you think back to the command where it's, you know, hey, observe the Sabbath day, 
And we talked about this idea that God wants us to rest one day a week because he's designed our bodies to need that. And also because it's a way of relying on God, trusting that God is gonna provide for us even when we are resting. And what we realize is that's the exact rubric of the gospel, that the gospel of Jesus Christ says that God is the one who's gonna do all of the work that is necessary for us to be saved. And what we're called to do is rest upon that, right? Or we talked about two weeks ago, thou shalt not murder again. And this idea of what do we do when we have hatred in our heart or someone's offended us or we've been hurt by someone else and we look at what Christ did for us when we rejected and offended him. He gave his life for us. So we see that the gospel itself becomes the very ethic that helps us to obey these commands. And so these kind of been the three things I've been trying to teach you as we've been going through these. And all of these are going to apply today for the seventh commandment, which we'll read right now. So if you're in Exodus chapter 20, Verse 14, um, not that hard to memorize. You shall not commit adultery. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Now, I think on the surface, most of us probably know what the Bible is referring to when it uses the word adultery. But actually, if you study scripture, The Bible provides us two definitions of adultery, all right? The the first definition has to do with marriage, right? That we have made a covenant with another person. We gave vows, right? And so this idea of stepping outside of your marriage, all right, and having sexual relations with another person, that would be the kind of uh, most basic definition of adultery, Right, So I'm gonna violate this covenant, I'm gonna violate these vows, and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna have sexual intimacy with another person. Or another definition of it is having sexual intimacy with someone who is married, who is in a covenant with another person. So there's your most basic definition of adultery, but the Bible also calls idolatry adultery. We have several places in the prophets and Jeremiah in particular, and Jesus himself, that Jesus in several times called God's people, the Jewish people of the time, adulterers. Because it's not that they were stepping outside of their marriages, but they were stepping outside their relationships with God, and they were looking to other things to be their God. So we see that this definition of adultery has to do with marriage, yes, and we'll talk about that, but it also has to do with our relationship with God in Scripture. And so here's what this means. Here's what we're going to talk about today. Today, we are going to talk about this idea of covenant. Covenant. What does it mean for you and me to have a covenant with someone else, whether that be a spouse or God himself? And what does that do in my life? And what are the consequences when that covenant is ruptured? I wanna talk about, just to get us started here, I wanna talk about this idea of intimacy. What does it mean to be intimate with another person? 
All right, so if we're talking about marriage, I think we have an idea of what intimacy is. Of course, physical intimacy, sexual intimacy, right? This idea of two bodies, unclothed, becoming very close, right? As close as you can get to one another. That's usually the images, right, that we get when we think about intimacy. But intimacy is also a personal experience, relational experience, and emotional experience. So you and your spouse, you're not just intimate physically, but you're intimate emotionally. They know everything about you. You know everything about them. You're very close in your relationship. Right, same thing with God. You could talk about having intimacy with God, this idea that you're very close to God, that you feel his presence, that you're very aware, that he knows everything about you and he's seen every thought and he knows every desire. He knows your story better than anyone else and what you've gone through. There's an intimacy that we can have with God. And you can even talk about intimacy with other people, friends and family, obviously appropriate intimacy, right? Where you're just relationally close with someone, right? So we think about what is intimacy and, and what does that have to do with anything? I, I think intimacy is this idea of how much do you allow someone to know you? How much do you allow someone to know you. That's kind of what intimacy is. So in marriage, right, you let someone know you in a physical way that you don't let anyone else know you in that way, right? Because it's intimacy, all right? Maybe you let that person know you more, your faults and your quirks and all of those things more than anyone else. That's this idea of intimacy. So how do we measure that? How do we measure intimacy? I think this is a really interesting question when we think about intimacy is with all of these relationships you have, with a spouse, if you're married, with God, with friends, family, whoever it is, I think one of the ways that we can measure intimacy is by asking this question, how much am I personally worried or anxious about what they think about me? So just, just think about this for a second. How much... Am I worried or anxious about what they think about me? Because the more I expose myself to them, the more they're gonna see both the good and the bad. And how anxious does that make me? So, so if you're married, think about a relationship with your spouse. Th think about physical intimacy. Unclothing yourself in, in front of them, right? That's a very vulnerable, intimate thing to do. How much does that cause anxiety or worry when they see you? Or when you get into deep conversation or they see you at your worst, how much are you thinking about what they think about you? I think that becomes a measure of the level of intimacy that we have with that person. And so some of us are very comfortable with people, even a spouse being very close to us and seeing and knowing everything. And some of us have had marriages for a very long time where we keep each other at an arm's length. Same thing with God. How much do I worry about what God thinks about me? Is my typical image of God one of him being constantly frustrated at me, him being constantly annoyed that I haven't done the things that I know I'm supposed to do? 
right? Do I get worried when I pray to him? Are there certain things I pray about and certain things that I don't pray about? Because again, there's this deep anxiety over, I don't know if God is really pleased with me. And, and that becomes a measure of your, your intimacy with God, right? And we could ask the same question with friends, with family, when we talk about appropriate levels of intimacy, asking this question, what do they think about me? Does that cause anxiety for me? That is a marker, right, that there's not that much intimacy in the relationship. Why am I talking so much about intimacy? Genesis chapter two, the very last verse God has just created everything. He's declared it good. It's paradise. There's no sin. And it says, the man and his wife were both naked, unclothed, but also think vulnerable and unashamed. Unashamed, meaning that they were willing to be close physically and I think relationally, and they had nothing to hide, right? No anxiety about what the other person thought. But what happens in Genesis chapter three? Right, sin enters the world. They break God's command. They start to blame each other. What do they do? What's the first thing they do? They run to the bushes and they cover up. Because all of a sudden, I need to hide from God because I'm worried about what he thinks about me now. And I need to hide from him or her because I'm worried about what they think about me. So what we see between Genesis two and Genesis three is intimacy in relationship with God and with each other. And this particular relationship is a marriage relationship is lost, it's gone. So here's what I wanna talk about today. Here's my goal for today. I want you to see that this thing that we call covenant, and I'll explain it, We'll define it. This thing that we call covenant provides the context and the environment that is required for intimacy to happen. You with a spouse, you with God, you with friends and family. Covenant is required for intimacy to happen. So let me show this to you. Let's go to the Bible. Actually, turn left in your Bible to Genesis chapter 15. All right, I wanna talk a bit about covenant and this covenant that God made with us, with his people, how that covenant was made and what that means for us. So if you go to Genesis chapter 15, I'm gonna read a few verses. I'll start there in verse nine, but let me set it up for you. In Genesis chapters 12 to 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And here's the covenant that God makes. He essentially says, all right, you gotta kind of read all of Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15 to get this full covenant, all right? So we're not gonna read all of that together, but let me paraphrase it for you. Basically, the covenant that God makes with Abraham is this. Listen, I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna bless your offspring and you are gonna turn into this vast nation and that nation will be Israel, okay? The nation of Israel. And out of Israel's going to come a Messiah, Jesus. And that Messiah will take the blessing that I've put upon Israel and expand it out to all of the nations so that anyone who trusts in this Messiah, Jesus, will be made right with God, will be blessed now. 
And so that's what we believe. Actually, Galatians chapter three teaches us that the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15 is the gospel. It, it literally says that, that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham back in Genesis. That's in Galatians three, if you wanna go study that for a bit. So God makes this covenant, this promise with Abraham and here's what I want us to read together in Genesis 15. I want us to read, it's, it's, gonna, it's a little weird, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I wanna read about how God ratifies this covenant with Abraham, all right? So he's given him all the stipulations, but how does God ratify it? How does God put it in force? Let's read this together. Look at uh, Genesis 15, uh, nine. Verse nine says, he said to him, so God's ratifying this, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. All right, so here's the image you have. You've got Abraham, apparently he's, talking to God, so we're not really sure what form God's in right there. And he has these animals, he's sliced them in half and he's kind of put them in rows. Like there's like this aisle between the halves of the animals, okay? And so what God does here, so he reiterates the covenant, jump down with me to verse 17. It says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, who is Abraham. All right, so what is going on here? So basically, God is using a way that people in the ancient Near East made covenants with one another to make a covenant with Abraham. And so here's what they would do back in the ancient Near East. They would take their animals, split them in half, create an aisle, just like that. They would make their covenant, right? They would give each other the stipulations of it. Then they would both pass through this aisle. And it's essentially a way of saying, if I don't keep my end of this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And that's essentially the symbolism behind it. And so what we see here in Genesis chapter 15, especially verse 17, and this is crazy, is that this smoking fire pot, this flaming torch, which is a symbolism for God, all right? When God shows up in the Old Testament, most of the time it's in this, this form of flame. And so every scholar believes this is a symbolism of God walking himself between the halves of these animals. But here's what's crazy is only God walks between them. Abraham doesn't. He's asleep, right? This is a vision he's having. And so God walks between both of these and typically both parties pass through. But here's the covenant that God is making with Abraham. Here's what I'm gonna do. Through you, Abraham, I'm gonna bless the whole world. There's gonna be a way in which people can be reconciled to me in and through this Messiah that's gonna come. And I'm gonna pass through these animals to make my promise that I will make this happen. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will make this happen. I will make a way that you can be redeemed back to me, that your sin can be forgiven. And so what is the story of the entire Bible? 
right? The story of the entire Bible is man sinned against God. God then comes and graciously makes a covenant with us that he's going to redeem us, that he's going to save us from all of this. And then God calling us to a new way of living, which is what these 10 commandments are and others, right? New way of living. And what's the entire story of the Bible? Adultery. That's the entire story of the Bible. God making a way, making a covenant, coming after us, giving us the way that we should live, calling us to obedience to that, and God's people constantly failing and looking to other things to be their God. It is us committing adultery against God and God consistently coming back and calling us back to the covenant and calling us back to the covenant. And so what is the epitome of all of it? It's God sending his son, Jesus, to take the penalty for us breaking the covenant. God sending Jesus to literally be mutilated under his wrath to become like the animals became as he passed through on our behalf because we broke the covenant against him. It is God saying, I'm not only going to keep this covenant, I'm gonna take the punishment for you not keeping this covenant. And in doing so, I'm going to change your heart and I'm gonna continue to call you back to this new way of living over and over again. And what you need to do is just rest in that, have faith in that. This is the entire story of the Bible. There's actually a whole book about it in the prophets called Hosea. God constantly going after the one who's committed adultery against him. My favorite verse in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter three, verse 22, is a great summary. Return, O faithless sons and daughters, I will heal your faithlessness. It's the summary of this covenant that we have. So here's the thing. This is the covenant that you have with God. There is no sin too great that will fracture this covenant because of what Christ has done on the cross to redeem it and what Christ has done to begin to change your heart. There is no thought in your heart or desire in your life that will fracture this covenant. This covenant stands strong. Nothing will shake it because it depends on the strength of God. It does not depend on your strength. And here's why this is so important. This is so important. God knows everything about you, every sin, every desire, every part of your story, every good thing, every bad thing. He knows everything about you. And yet the covenant is stable. There's nothing that God has discovered inside of you that has caused this covenant to start to become weak or has caused God to regret having this covenant, or has caused God to question if he's going to stay faithful to this covenant. Nothing weakens it. And so what happens is this covenant provides a hedge of protection around you and God and your relationship with one another, which allows you, guess what, to be what? You. Allows you to be you. You don't have to pretend with God. 
You don't have to project strength with God. You don't have to, uh, you know, pray and act like you're someone you're not. How many of us do that? You can be you because there's a covenant that God put into place and it is not going anywhere. And so what happens is covenant allows intimacy to occur because God knows everything about you and you don't need to worry about what he thinks about you. He's already redeemed you. He's changing your heart. He's moving you more and more towards obedience. And so you don't need to be worried about what God thinks about you. You can draw near to him because it's safe. Covenant provides the context and the environment for intimacy to occur. When covenant is in place, There's no need to run and hide in the bushes and cover up. And why? Why is that the case? Because at the end of the day, what covenant means is that he's not leaving. He will not leave you, ever. He will not leave you. Christ has come And he has taken our penalty for breaking this covenant. It is done. It is finished. He will not leave. So you can draw near to God. Covenant provides the context and environment for intimacy to occur. Now, here's the thing. The number one illustration that the Bible gives us to help us understand what our relationship with God is like is marriage all over the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, everywhere. God uses this idea of marriage to give an illustration for what your relationship with him is like. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the relationship between Christ and the church is like the relationship between a husband and a wife. And it's a profound mystery is what Paul says. And so the kind of covenant that God has with us that we just studied together is what the covenant between a husband and a wife ought to be, where you are promising to each other, I'm not leaving. Through everything, I'm staying. Ups and downs, like we're gonna put a hedge of protection around this relationship so we can be us so we can grow together, so we don't have to pretend to be someone that we're not with each other so that we can have intimacy with one another as our marriage grows. Now, let me say this before I push forward in this. I've been saying this every week, uh, and I think it's appropriate to do so. So yeah, today I'm gonna be talking about realities of marriage and adultery a little bit. Um, But when marriages start to fall apart, when adultery occurs, uh, when people have drifted and divorce is now on the table, uh, I hate speaking generally about those things. So I won't. I'm not gonna speak generally about the idea of divorce. And so I invite you, if that's something going on in your marriage, like I wanna speak to you personally. I wanna hear your story. I wanna hear what's going on in your marriage. And then we'll talk about these things and see what the scriptures have to say. So in regards to what the Bible says about adultery and divorce, I'm not gonna talk about that today because I don't like to talk about it generally. But when it comes to the covenant that God desires between a husband and a wife, it is to be like this covenant that we just studied here in the Old 
Testament because it's covenant that provides the context for intimacy to grow. And so here's the thing that will erode intimacy in your marriage. The thing that will erode intimacy in your marriage is a lack of confidence in the covenant that protects your marriage. So when you make a covenant with one another and you say, I'm not leaving, I'm here, but there's a lack of confidence in that, right? I'm still worried about what you think about me. Then that is going to erode intimacy in a relationship and in the marriage, right? If one questions that covenant, then the only response is to run to the bushes and hide. And so what causes someone to have a lack of confidence in that covenant that is this hedge of protection around the marriage and it is adultery, adultery. But again, like we've been doing in all of these commands, I wanna zoom out from, what the, uh, from just this word adultery and ask the question, well, what is adultery? What's the heart behind adultery? Because I think we're gonna see it's far more than just stepping outside of your marriage. So what is adultery? Well, I think adultery is any time we leave the covenant, desire to leave the covenant, or threaten to leave it. I think adultery is any time we leave the covenant, desire to leave it, or threaten to leave the covenant, right? And so when we think about this from a sexual perspective, because there's obviously ways we can do this sexually, is yes, so anytime we step outside of our marriage sexually in any form, where we seek sexual fulfillment apart from our spouse in any way, we are literally leaving the covenant. We're saying, I'm gonna go find intimacy somewhere else, the kind of intimacy that I should only have with my spouse. Anytime we desire to do that, fantasize about doing that or threaten to do it, I think what we're doing is we are, we're committing an adulterous act that is eroding confidence in the covenant. And so I don't think this is just a sexual thing. I also think that this is a relational thing. Anytime we leave it relationally, desire to leave it relationally, or threaten to leave it relationally, what we're doing is committing an adulterous act that is eroding the confidence that we have in the covenant, the very thing that allows intimacy to happen inside the marriage, right? So, so think about this for a second, right? Is, is imagine if our relationship with God was conditional. Uh, imagine if there were things that we could do to weaken the covenant, the hedge of protection around our relationship with God. Imagine if it really was the case that if you didn't wake up early every day this week and have your quiet time, that God would actually start to step back away from that covenant. Or, or God would say to you, you do that again, I'm out. And he threatened to leave the covenant. Imagine if that was your relationship with God, right? Or if he said, listen, you do that one more time, one more time, then you will no longer be covered by the blood of Christ. How anxiety-ridden would our relationship with God be? But that's not how God interacts with us. That's not what the gospel is. 
The gospel is the reality that a covenant's been put in place by God himself, and it's not going anywhere. And that's the kind of covenant we're called to have in our marriages. And any time we do things to erode that, right? We step outside, we threaten to leave it, we desire to leave it, we fantasize about leaving it, we just begin to erode the strength of the covenant and therefore intimacy is not going to happen, both physically and relationally. But here's the thing that I think we need to talk about in all of this. I'm kind of trying to get us down to, to this place because I think this is really where the rubber meets the road for us on this reality. We need to talk about the ways that all of us have experienced covenants rupturing and what that has done to us. You know, we've talked about two formal covenants, the one we have with God and this formal covenant we make with a spouse if you're married, right? Both of those are formal, right? The, 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 the stipulations of our covenant with God are right here. And then when you are married, when you get married, you, you make your vows to your spouse. It's a very formal thing. There's witnesses, someone signs off on it, everything, right? It's formal, but we have lots of informal covenants with people. Maybe it's like your relationship with your parents or your relationship with your kids, right? When your kids came out or when you were born, like you didn't, you know, stand in front of a, a pastor and make vows and like sign this formal covenant. No, there's just this kind of unspoken covenant that I'm here for you and I'm not gonna leave you and I'm gonna care for you and nurture you and I'm gonna be here. No matter what, I'm gonna be here. If you mess up, if you make my life miserable, I'm going to be here for you. There's this unspoken covenant made. And many of us have experienced the rupture of that covenant of going, why did they leave? Many of us have experienced the ruptures of previous marriages where that has occurred. What has that done to us? Or I think about covenants, informal, right? Uh, unspoken covenants we might make with friends, family. You know, uh, good, trusted friends or brothers and sisters of ours, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandmother, grandparents, other family or other good friends. They're not these formal covenants, but there might be this understood thing of, man, we love each other. We care for each other. We're not leaving each other. This is a safe relationship to begin to have intimacy, appropriate intimacy, where we can really know each other and care for one another. And we enter into those relationships with people when they... They rupture. And someone does leave. And we just kind of brush it off, but we don't realize what that's done to us. Church family. I mean, actually, here it actually is kind of formal. We, when people become members of our church, we make a covenant with one another. We call it a covenant. And it's basically this way of saying, hey, we're committed to each other. We're gonna follow Jesus together. We're gonna to reach our neighbors together. We're gonna to do this thing together because you know what we wanna do here at Grace Hill is we wanna create a hedge of protection of covenant around this church that says it's safe to be you here. That's why we put in our very mission statement. We wanna be a place that's safe to be known. We want this to be a place where there are people who are committed here through the ups and through the downs. And yeah, people leave, and people leave for appropriate reasons. We sent off the lean cows today. They're moving away, but people leave for not so appropriate reasons. And we've had that here too. 
And I've had people come up to me all the time and go, why did they leave? I was close with them in community group. They ministered to me in this way or that way. And I think what happens is we decide to leave a church and we think, oh, that decision only impacts me. And you don't realize it impacts an entire community. It impacts a hedge of protection, a covenant that's been made that allows us to be a safe place. And when someone does that, it causes everyone to go, huh, I wonder if that's really strong enough here. I mean, just to be, listen, I wasn't planning on doing this. I'll be vulnerable with you guys. It's always a risk to be vulnerable. Um, You know, I know for me as a pastor, and my wife would definitely say this as the the wife of a pastor, that um, one of the hardest things about ministry is we lose lots of friends. I'm very aware every time I step on this stage, I could lose one of you as a friend. And I don't want it to be that way, but it always happens. And so it's very hard for pastors, for ministers to get close to people, to allow intimacy to happen in a church family because I never know when I'm gonna say one thing and you're out. It's hard. Like we lose so many friends, all my pastor friends. It's what, you know, it's it's the hardest thing that they go through. It's because we don't see covenant as something that is worth fighting hard to maintain. And I'm not perfect. There are, there are dumb things I say up here. So I'm not saying I haven't said dumb things. I've absolutely said dumb things up here. But that's the kind of covenant that we're trying to build. And, and so the thing that I think we need to talk about here is this, is what ways have we experienced ruptures of covenants in our life? Because I think that erodes our ability to make covenants in the future. When we've experienced covenants being ruptured, significant people that we've built intimacy with leaving, that erodes our ability, I think, in the future to enter into a marriage covenant or to at least have confidence in one or to enter into a covenant with God and to trust that God's never going to leave us. Listen, if we've had significant people in our lives in the past leave us, it's gonna be hard for us to trust a covenant with God. I promise you. And I think, I think that's something that we need to talk about because if we've had lots of covenants ruptured in our life, then it erodes our ability to have intimacy with a spouse, with friends, family, our church family, and with God. And so I need to bring this to a close. Band, you guys want to come up, you can, but um, here's where I want to leave us today. I just want to to lead us into a time of reflection together. And and here's a question that I have for you. You might be surprised at the question. I'm, I'm just curious what's going on inside of you when it comes to covenant and when it comes to intimacy. Like, how is your intimacy with God? Like, do you trust that God will never leave you? Do you have confidence in this covenant that he has made with you? And maybe for you today, you're like, Alan, I I don't know if I've ever seen God in that light. And, And what I wanna do is invite you into the riches of that covenant and invite you to trust in Jesus for the first time and trust that he has done all of the work necessary and he has taken all of the penalty necessary for our sin against him and he's redeemed us 
and you can be in a relationship with God that is never going to break and he will never leave. It's what the entire Bible is about. Or I'm curious what's going on inside of you today if you're married in the room. How is the intimacy in your marriage? How is the confidence in the covenant you've made with one another? That is such a hard question to ask. And I just wanna say, hey, we are here for you. We want to help shepherd you towards a strong covenant in your marriage and deeper growing intimacy in your marriage, but you gotta ask for help. I wanna invite you to do that. What's going on inside of you, maybe as you start to think about ways in which covenants have been ruptured in the past, whether people leaving you or, or maybe that's you leaving others. And maybe the damage that that's done to your ability to have relationships with others, the kind that God wants you to have and to experience. Just curious. What's going on in you? The first step in all of this, right, is for obviously all of us to come to the table. Because at the table, what is represented here is the fact that Jesus Christ himself, he came, he passed down the aisle, he took all of God's wrath and anger against our sin upon himself. His body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could be cleansed. When you taste that cracker and you drink of that juice, I want you to be reminded that the covenant between you and God is strong. And there's your starting place. Right there, intimacy with God, drawing near to him, letting him begin to do the work of healing inside of you and letting that be the place that you go and create intimacy with others. So I wanna invite you to the table. I want to invite you to drink deeply of the goodness of God in your life. And the fact that this is what the Bible really says, this is what is true, is that he'll never leave you. That's what that table represents. So I'm gonna pray. You're invited to the table afterwards. And we just love to have a moment of reflection and asking this question, God, what's going on inside of me? And what are you trying to teach me this morning? Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to be able to call you by that name. Because you are a true father who will never leave us, who will sacrifice for us, who will stop at nothing to keep us in your love and will never let us go. God, my main prayer right now for every person in this room is they would feel a deep intimacy with God, with you. That they would have confidence in the covenant you have established with us. And God, may that spill over into all of our other relationships. Lord, I pray that this would be a church where it's safe to be known. This would be the church, a church, 
where we're committed to each other. We're committed to one another. It's okay to draw near to one another here because we're all linking arms, following you, seeking to reach our neighbors and do it together. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name.